Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer Ariana Neumann to discuss her debut, When Time Stopped, a memoir of my father's war and what remains. The book documents Ariana's journey as she pieces together the history of her family, unearths her Jewish heritage, and begins to understand the monumental efforts of her relatives to survive World War II in their homeland of Czechoslovakia yet as so many were transported and murdered by the Nazis. Ariana, welcome. Hello, Michelle. It's such a joy to be with you today and chat. Thank you for joining. Your book is a family memoir that delved so deeply, and it was you that did the delving. I sense this book might not have been written as much as it might have been, was it a particular moment that triggered you to put pen to paper for a wider audience? Oh, you know, I don't know if it was a particular moment. I, I, it was definitely not. It didn't start its life as a book. It started its life as a, you know, it was as, was me, I suppose, me, the little girl in me who wanted to solve the mystery of her dad. So it all started when I was eight or nine and I found an ID card, which had a photograph of my father. And this is all happening in Caracas, Venezuela, where I grew up. And I found an ID card and there was a photograph of my father. I recognized it as him. The ID card was stamped Berlin. And the name on the card wasn't my father's at all. It said 1943 Berlin. And the name was Jan Sebesta. And that was not my father's name. My father was called Hans Neumann. So I think at the, it, that was a sort of moment I knew there was a mystery I had to solve. And I wasn't allowed as a child to ask questions about his past. I wasn't ever spoken. I mean, I grew up with silences surrounding um, his past, his life in the Czech Republic, in Czechoslovakia, his, um, his family. Um, so I knew, I knew I, he wasn't going to be able to provide the answers. I knew I couldn't ask questions. He got upset. He started shaking. He'd have nightmares. Um, but I knew there was a mystery. And I think that's, I mean, I think that was the moment I realized I had to solve the mystery. And then you know, I grew up and he died when I was um, almost 30 years old. And he left um, he left me this box with the same ID card and it was crammed with documents. So it started, I guess, as a little girl asking questions and trying to understand her father. And it wasn't actually, it didn't become a book until much later on. So I always wanted to write. When I was a little girl, I used to write really bad poetry. And as a in my 20s, I used to write short stories, um, and I worked a little bit in journalism. I always felt I didn't have a story that was good enough to tell. And I was really scared that my writing wasn't up to scratch. And I'm still pretty scared that my writing is not up to scratch. But, you know, actually, I figured it didn't really matter because I thought the story was really worthwhile. And I think it was at some stage, maybe in 2016 and 17, where I started uncovering these stories, one of them actually about a cousin of my dad's who was murdered in basically 11 days in Auschwitz. And he was murdered because he went swimming in the wrong bit of the river. And um, 
and he was a young man. He was in his late 20s. He was a really, by all accounts, a really kind man. He wasn't doing anything horrendous. This was actually 1941, so before Auschwitz really became the Auschwitz that we know as Auschwitz. And and yet he was murdered. And I thought, it's just astonishing, right, that, that these things happen. And I have to tell the story for him. And I uncovered, you know, I had 34 relatives, it turns out. Um, I only really knew about two when I was growing up. And they all had incredible stories. And of course, I couldn't tell all the stories because the book would have been 2,000 pages and Scribner wouldn't have published it. But I think it was uncovering these stories that made me realize that I had to tell them. And it didn't really matter if my writing was good enough or not good enough. And it was no longer a little girl solving, solving a mystery, but it was also a sort of grown woman doing her duty, I suppose, as a child of a Holocaust survivor. It was after your father died that, that your research and your writing began. And, and I, I think it's, you know, you discovered as you were attempting to sort out a parent's papers, as you know, so many people have to face this task, that actually had done a lot of the sorting for you and disposed of nearly everything except for the contents, as you said, of this box. Do you think of that box as a gift or, or as a burden or, or as, as both? You know, I think of it as a gift now. I think when it was left initially, I thought of it as a gift as well. <laughs> and then I, when I started looking through it, I realized it was just going to take me years and it was going to be a lot of work. And I figured it was going to be a really difficult journey. And I was having kids. I was having young kids. I'm at the stage where sort of you're now, I think. So my kids were, I mean, my, my father, my oldest son was born three weeks after my father died. Um, and I had them all, in, I had three children in quick succession. And I didn't really think I could delve into the box and find the answers um, that I needed to find at that stage. I figured it was just, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do bedtime stories for the kids and be cheerful and, and happy and then uncover all this darkness that I would, I figured would, you know, come be part of this horrendous story of the Holocaust. Um, so it became, it was a gift. For, I opened it, I realized, oh my goodness, this is, I can't deal with this now. And I actually hid it in a little, in, in, in a little, in another box. So a box within a box, which, where I didn't have to look at it. Um, and yet I always felt it there. So then it was more of a burden. And then as I started piecing it together, it became a gift again, because it gave me back this huge family, right, that I didn't even know I had. So it was, I mean, it was, it, this, some of the stories were, were, I mean, horrendous and heartbreaking. And yet there was so much joy. And, and I got to meet these people because, I, I, you know, part of what I uncovered as I went and delved into the archives and asked questions were these beautiful letters written by my grandparents from, well, some from before the war, um, some snuck out of the concentration camp of Terezin. And, the, you know, they were letters that I wasn't meant to read. They were very open letters that were, um, they were coded because you never knew who was going to read them, but they were addressed to their children. So it was a little, I mean, it was a huge window into their souls and into who they were. So having grown up without grandparents on my father's side, all of a sudden I had this incredible gift, which was their words and the ability to get to know them in a way that I probably wouldn't have 
if I had, you know, grown up baking with my grandmother or, you know, discussing, I don't know, Hinduism with my grandfather, right? So, um, so it was a completely different journey of, of acquiring grandparents, but a rather special one. And because of their age, I probably wouldn't have grown up cooking with them and having discussions with them anyways. So it was a real gift. All these letters, as you say, all these interviews that then came about and conversations with family that were alive and, and you made so many journeys too. I wanted to pull out one particular extract, Ariana, of this, when you were reflecting on your father's parents. I have paced the same rooms and hallways, climbed the same stairs, held onto the same railings, crossed the same streets, tripped on the same chipped cobblestones of Prague sidewalks, walked on the paths of the Vultava that smell of the same magnolias and geraniums, knocked on the same doors, turned the same handles and entered the same rooms. From their windows I have looked out at their world. I have imagined them so many times that it is almost as if I have my own memory of my grandparents and of who and how they were. And I paraphrase this, I can conjure them, I can see them vividly. Which of course has made life all the more painful, as you say in your book, there are nightmares now for you and profound sadness. But if you hadn't looked back in the way you did, do you think it would have been an incomplete life? Oh, completely, completely. So it's, you know, I mean, as you read that, I, there's, you know, it was so important for me to go to these places, right? Because places, well, places shape you. And I think even when you you don't you know, even when you're not not aware that they shape you, what you look out every day from the window, and it it shapes who you are. And I wanted to understand when in my grand you know in one letter my grandmother is in Theresienstadt, and she writes about dreaming of her countryside walks and dreaming of the spring along along the Vltava River along this little house that they had in Lipchice, and you know. As I was trying to understand what they went through, I thought I have to go there. I have to walk along the banks that she's dreaming of to understand them. And then, of course, I was incredibly lucky, as as, well, as I'm sure you know, as you have some Czechoslovakian heritage. Um, you know, I think Czechoslovakia changed very little, really, because of it was communist. So there wasn't huge development. So a lot of the buildings that my grandparents and that my family lived in we're still standing, are still standing. Some have changed purpose. So the family had a paint factory in Prague and that went, um, and that's now a nightclub, but the building is still there with the same windows, with the same walls, um, the same for the, their flat in Prague and their, their house, the countryside house. So um, it was, you know, it was really, really important to go to all these places. And I've now completely lost my train of thought. And I'm now talking about going to these places. But is it any, and I now remember, is it an incomplete journey? You know, it would have been completely, I mean, I could not, I, I had I had to do it, right? So this box was there beckoning me to solve the mystery. I also think, you know, I grew up with silences all my life. And, and silences, um, and I was listening to one of your podcasts with this poet, and she was talking about silence as, a, as opposed to quietude or, or stillness. And, you know, I think silence is, 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 is an absence of answers. It's an absence of words. And I think it, it's much more dramatic, for example, than quietude. It's much more aggressive and it shapes you. Um, 
so a silence shapes you. And I grew up with silences where there should have been words, where there should have been stories. So I had to fill them. And, and you know, it would have been wonderful if my father could have filled them with his own stories. But he couldn't. They were too painful for him to, to relive, for him to, to, you know, for him to tell me. So... Um, so I had to go through that journey. I had to go and talk to the few family members that were still alive that I knew of, find 300 others, some of whom didn't have stories, but a lot of whom did have stories, and fill those silences. I felt the need to do it. I think otherwise the box would not have been a burden, right? It would have just been forgotten, perhaps even thrown away. As you say, you're the daughter of a Czech refugee, and as you know, I am too, and my mother's also a refugee from former Czechoslovakia. It's a weighty label, isn't it? Is it, is it one you have fixed to yourself? You know, it's interesting. I've been asking myself this question, because on the one hand, um, my father was a Czech refugee, and he arrived in a Venezuela that was very open to immigrants, that was open to Europeans, as long as you pretended you were Catholic or you were baptized, you were allowed in. And that, of course, is completely different. The U.S. wasn't allowing refugees quite so openly. Um, but on the other side, my mother's family, you know, they've been in Venezuela, certainly since 1811. I mean, I, you know, I can trace some of them earlier on. So I'm half very established, I suppose, and half a refugee. And then I have... I don't know if it's a, a, you know, I happen to have my father's genes. So you, I think people often think of refugees as the other. And I don't necessarily, if you look at me, look like the other, whatever that may be. So my refugeeness and my, my, my otherness is very much something I carry in my heart, rather than something that is evident, I suppose, in, in, in my skin. Um, You're a bit of a wanderer, though, Ariana. I am definitely a wanderer. I'm definitely a wanderer. And actually, you know, I mean, if you, think, I mean, I am Venezuelan, and actually, the biggest migrant crisis outside of of, of Syria and Ukraine actually has been that of Venezuela. Um, it has, um, I think, about over five million people have left the country on foot. In, since 2000 and, um, 2012. And I have obviously not left on foot, but I have left. So I am a bit of a wanderer. I, I lived in Venezuela for most of my life. I think that's still the place I call home, except of course, home is, you know, home is not a place. It's something in your heart and in your mind. It doesn't exist, right? Um, but I think Venezuela is home, even though I'm sure I would go there. I haven't been there since 2006. So how could I have a home that I haven't been to? And you know, 16 years, it's impossible, right? Um, so I think home is in my head. Um, and, and, and being a refugee does weigh on me. It it's, shapes me, right? It, it means that I don't get attached to places or to things too much. Because I suppose, you know, those... I, I, see, I think there's a genetic memory. And I think if you grow up a child of refugees, you know that there's very little that you can take with you, pretty much nothing that you can take with you that matters, really, aside from what's in your head and in your heart. Um, but yes, I have wandered. So I've, I've gone from I'm a wanderer and a refugee. I've gone from um, I think I'm still always looking for a place that I can call home, um, maybe less so now because I, I 
you know, I, it's, it's interesting. I think when you're a refugee home, you realize that home cannot be a place, right? So it has to be somewhere in your heart. And, and, and what becomes much more important are those stories, right? Because if you don't have a place, you need stories to anchor you down. Um, and you need stories and you need love. So I, I place a lot of importance in, in, in love. And I don't mean sort of fleeting love. I mean sort of constant, strong love that becomes a home. Um, and I, you know, lucky enough to have that. I have a wonderful husband and three children who, um, who, who provide me with that, with that home, I suppose. Anyways, I'm, I'm rambling on. I'm not sure I'm making any sense, but um, yes, I've, so I've, but I've lived in all sorts of different places. I think that's maybe that's what you're getting at. I've lived in Venezuela. I lived in Lugano, Switzerland, quite randomly. And then I went back and I lived in Boston for a bit and, um, and then I did a little bit of travel writing and I wandered around um, around Asia. I went to Cuba and wrote some stories. And um, and then I went back to and lived in New York and did a master's there. And then I came to London initially, I thought, for a year because I was going to work in a newspaper. And, and ultimately, I here I am. And it's I don't even know how many years later, too many to count. Um, and this is strangely the place that where I've made my home. I wouldn't call it home, even though I have a British passport. I always say, I always say that my parents met in London and people say, how come they met in London? Because my dad is, as you know, from the country next door to Venezuela, Guyana. And, mm -hmm. um, and I say, in London, it's the city of refugees. So we're both kind of real evidence of that. When you were doing the research and you went to the Czech Republic, as it is now, and, and in particular Prague, did it ever feel, if not home, kind of familiar or, or did you feel like a stranger in a strange land no you know I, the, when I first got there I was and I went there with my dad I was really disappointed because I went there hoping to find an affinity and I think because my father had blocked out whole parts of his um of his experience there out of the trauma um I you know I went to this place and I didn't understand a word that was being said. I didn't understand, you know, my father refused to speak Czech. So um, we were speaking in English to this guide and it really didn't feel, um, it didn't feel that familiar. But then as I sort of immersed myself in the family stories and I went again and I went to my grandparents' um, home that they loved, that felt really familiar. So even though I don't speak the language, and I think language is really important for familiarity because I think language shapes brains and how people think. And I think if I spoke Czech, my brain would be, well, certainly much work much better and be enlarged. But also, you know, I think there are little things about language, right, that, that really shape you and, and make it feel much more like home. Um, and I think language is interesting, right? So I sort of, when I, when I get angry, I, I always, always get angry in Spanish. So I think, actually, when you speak a language, it ties you, you know, it, it, it ties to different bits of your brain. And I definitely am much more moved by things in Spanish than I am in other languages. So, you know, I don't know, going to Prague, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to learn Czech. Maybe you can help me with that. <laughs> but it's it's a tricky language, right? And it's... Um, and I wonder if once I speak Czech, I do have a Czech passport, 
And one of my dreams is one day to, you know, just maybe I can buy a little house by a river, just like my grandparents had. Um, but I need to speak Czech because otherwise it's going to be a disaster. Uh, right now, I own, the only thing I know how to say is kiss in a really old fashioned hubičku, which is a really old fashioned word, which I don't even think exists anymore. Um, so anyway, so I do think I, I do think I will feel more at home in the Czech well, the Czech Republic, as my grandparents were from Bohemia and Moravia. For me, for my family too, I mean, your father didn't teach you Czech and he didn't raise you speaking Czech. And when you asked him if you could learn it, he said, no, no, it would be a waste of time. Czech's a useless language, which is honestly almost identical echo of what my grandmother said to me when I was kind of wanting to speak it better. And it was a very political choice of hers. Um, and, and like your father too, she... she um, she had a loyalty to the country that gave her refuge, which I know you wrote about that in your book too, about how um, he always maintained that he was Venezuelan because that was the country that welcomed him as a refugee. And she felt the same about the UK. And I, I was always quite puzzled by that. I just, perhaps, is it our privilege, do you think, that we can you know, visit so freely and also interrogate the past in this way? That's interesting. That's a great way of putting it. It is. It is our privilege, right? It is our privilege that we don't we don't feel so tied anywhere. That we, you know, it's interesting because my father felt, and I suppose Jews in the nineteenth century when they were emancipated felt so grateful to finally be given a nationality, uh, to finally be citizens of of a of, well, my father, in my family's case of of Czechoslovakia, of you know. Austro-Hungary and then Czechoslovakia, that they felt really Czech. And um, and that meant actually that they felt really betrayed when the war came along. My father actually all felt, and he talked about this, and he talked about this when we were, visited Prague together in 1990. He said, I felt very betrayed by this country. And I think maybe it is our privilege, actually, that we're never going to feel. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to feel betrayed by a country. Um, perhaps because I haven't adopted a nationality quite in the same terms that my father has. I mean, my father really felt, and I think his family felt, that if they became Czech and they did everything that the Czech people did, they celebrated their holidays, they ate their food. Um, they adopted the religion, then they too would be, would be Czech and wouldn't, you know, and it turned out then the Nazis came along and said, no, you guys are, you know, you guys are not Czech. You're not Polish. You're not Hungarian. You're not German. You're Jews. Um, and then that, that completely changes. So it is, it is a privilege to maybe to belong to nowhere, to have no home that can betray you maybe. Mm, I think, I mean, I also feel like you that um, I, a country couldn't betray me, but I also feel a loss or because we don't have a, a language that we haven't, I haven't passed on to my children and you haven't either. And, and, and that is a real break. Like you, you also feel passionate about language. Like it's a real break in the link that we've, that we've lost. Like, yeah. And uh, you know, I, it's, I have tried to pass Spanish to my children, mostly so that they can understand when I'm angry at them. Um, but I meant, Czech, actually. I meant that you don't have, 
you don't have check to pass on. But no, the check, the check, I really don't have the ability to pass on. And I think I would, I, I really think I would think differently. So it was interesting when I, when I went to Prague and I, I walked around the Kafka Museum and they, they have an incredible sense of humor, the Czechs. And that actually felt very, very familiar, the sense of humor. So maybe the humor is not quite so tied to language in the way other bits are, but I understood it. Maybe it was just because I grew up with, maybe my father's humor was indeed Czech and he passed that on, even though he didn't pass the language on. But I do feel a sense, I do, I do I have a sense of the absurd, which is so brilliant, um, right? And the Kafka talks about it so brilliantly. Um, but yes, no, I do feel a huge sense of, of loss at not having not having this identity and not having the stories. And I used to be really angry at my dad, really angry at my dad. I mean, as a teenager, but also in my twenties. And also as I, you know, as I started piecing together, I thought, I can't believe, I feel like I've been cheating of a cheated of an identity. Um, and it was such, such a naive thing to feel, of course. And, you know, I still, I do, it doesn't mean that I, you know, I it's still a loss and I can still mourn the loss. I just no longer, I now understand why, I was raised the way I did. So I, I, you know, having been angry, I now completely understand it couldn't, you know, it, it couldn't really have been any other way, given what he had lived through. I wanted to return to your research, Ariana, about you described one of your interviews with a cousin and, and how you hoped that with each conversation that you were having, that more fragments of memory might emerge. And then one did. And I quote, something dislodged a fragment of recollection, which proved to be very helpful. What did writing the book teach you about memory? Oh, you know, actually, I'm, I'm just working on a piece about memory. And memory is, well, it, it's just, it's just such a, it's just such an elusive thing. And it is so shaped by our narratives and by our identities. Um but it's also shaped by our pain, right? So what we can remember um, has a lot to do with what we can cope with, right? So memory is, um, I, I mean, it's it, it's it's obviously not exact, it's not reliable, um, but it's still incredibly beautiful. And it tells you what you remember, tells you so much about, about the person doing the remembering, right? Um, in, 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 and I mean, the other thing which is extraordinary is that it's very tied. So when you're, and I'm sure you know this as you're a journalist, whenever you ask people questions, you ask direct questions. If it's something to do with the past, if it's something to do with emotions, direct questions do not give you the answers you want. So getting stories from people takes a lot of time, even when that person is your cousin. And even when she's actively trying to help me, she was actively in this particular, this is my first cousin, it's my uncle Lauter's um, daughter, and she was actively trying to help me because I was also uncovering her father's story. So she, you know, she was, we were trying to find his father, her father's first wife, Stenka, um, and her children. And she also wanted to do this. And she just had this block. She kept on saying, I have no idea. I can't help you find her. And all of a sudden we were talking about her my cousin's art so my cousin's an artist now and then all of a sudden she remembered actually through her art that Stenka's daughter's boyfriend had become a gallerist and that's how we found 
Stenka, who turns out to be this incredible, larger than life, beautiful, bold woman who was a Gentile who helps my family, who sneaks the contraband into the camp, who actually sneaks herself into the camp of Theresienstadt. Um, and it was just extraordinary because I had been asking for five years, come on, you know, you must remember something. Tell me, you know, did you meet Stenka? When, did, you know, what happened to her? And my cousin just had a block. And, you know, she just kept on saying, no, I have I have no idea how to find her. And it, that wasn't true. She did. She just, you know, it wasn't it were the direct questions did not produce the answers that, that we needed. There's there's another moment in the book um, when you cite two conflicting accounts and you write either account could have been correct or the truth could rest, as it often does, balanced somewhere between. And in this example, you reference both perspectives did you ever find yourself making a call and, and choosing a side? Maybe because you didn't have the other side or it was a rich, more richly told side that you had. Yeah, so, you know, I tried I generally, so I tried not to include anything that I couldn't corroborate, at least with one other completely different source. And by that, I meant someone from a sort of different branch of the family or from, you know, a, a completely different written source. Uh, whether it was archival or whether it was a letter. Um, there was a moment, actually, um, and this has to do with my grandfather. And so my grandfather, and, and this is, uh, my father believed my grandfather died in the selection ramp in Auschwitz. So he had dyed his hair with shoe polish. And here, because he had been told he had white hair, he was 46. Oh, God, I'm trying to think how old he was. You know, I have a block with these things. I, I try to think of how they lived and not how they died. He was in his early 50s when he died, and he had white hair. So he had been told that his hair should be dark so he could look more young and strong and, and, and you know, and be used to work by the Nazis. So he had dyed his hair. By then, you couldn't find hair dye. This is 1944. It's the um, fall of 1944. You couldn't find hair dye. Um, so he had dyed it with shoe polish and it started to rain on the ramp in, in the selection process. And he had been sent to the workforce. And when it started to rain, the shoe polish started to wash off and run down his neck. Um, and that was when he was sent to the gas chambers. Now that is a version that my father left in writing in his in his papers about Berlin. And that is also the version that someone else had told me in the family. So another one of my cousins who had survived the war, um, who had survived Auschwitz, had told me in the family. There was one other person who said, actually, no, your grandfather made it out of Auschwitz in January, and he was in a death march. So that was a contradiction. But I couldn't find any corroborating evidence for that anywhere in the archives or indeed with another another one else so I did have a conflict there so yes I did I did have to do it and and you know I always sort of I try to be relatively methodical about these things because as obviously as we've discussed memory is is a tricky thing um so I tried to make sure that you know that matched up the two you know the the one with the most you know, with the most proof behind it, the most, you know, solid material behind it was the one that that made the story. And there were some that actually where I had conflict, which I didn't include, but I obviously, how my grandfather died was absolutely key. 
um, even though I try to focus on how they lived, I, I had to tell the readers how he died. I mean, you've said twice there that you want to remember how they lived rather than how they died. And I, I also noticed when you have these two beautiful photographs of your grandparents in the book, you print it in the book, and they look happy and relaxed. And your caption is this, it's, in my memory, this is how they remain. Do the subsequent horrors not ever get in the way of... Oh, I don't know. You know, I mean, they do get in the way and I get incredibly sad when I speak about them, right? So I get really emotional sometimes. And if you're not careful, I'm going to burst into tears. <laughs> so at five o'clock on Friday. Thanks, Michelle. I'm holding uh, my head in my hands. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, and, I, I, and it's fine. That's part of the process too. But how I remember them is not... You know, I don't remember the sort of shoe polish washing down, even though... You know that obviously is 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 a very vivid image, right? I, I, it's it's an incredible image. It's, it's it's and I have the description of how my father imagined it. But you know, I don't know. I have a very simplistic view of life, which is I think we all die, and what differentiates us is not really how we die because it doesn't really matter. It's how we live. It's how we choose to live. And to me, actually, and maybe it's because I, you know, I've just. I've just found my grandparents. I, I grew up with silence around them. I grew up with a photograph that my father had, which was a really, really sad photograph. It's a photograph where the, my grandparents are sitting around a table, looking down at whatever it is they're doing, and they're not interacting with each other. They're not interacting with the photographer. They're not smiling. It's just an odd photograph to keep. Um, so I, you know, I don't remember them like that. Uh, I remember them smiling. I remember my grandmother skiing. I remember my grandfather in his beloved garden in his house in Lipchichir with his beloved Stenka, his daughter-in-law. Um, and that's how I remember them. And maybe, you know, maybe it's a protection mechanism. Maybe it's just too tough to remember them um, uh, it, it, as anything else. And it's it, that's probably right, right, because I also say in the book, I'm I'm not ready to go to Auschwitz because actually... I've just, I've literally just welcomed my grandparents into my life 10 years ago. And I, I really am not ready to let them go. And I think if I go to Auschwitz and I'm really going to have to think about how they died, even if there's no grave there yet, I, there's a sort of memorial pool with all the ashes and apparently of people that were gassed there. And I just, I, you know, that's not how I want to remember them. I, I have them with me. They're my lovely ghosts. Um, I mean, they're too vivid to even call them ghosts. Um, and I, I just like having them with me. There's a line in your book, Ariana, which is a quote of the writer Rainer Maria Rilke, who himself was born in Prague. And in his book of hours, he writes, nearby is the country they call life. Your father, in fact, spoke that quote to a 19-year-old woman who went on to become his first wife. It replays in my head. There's this a yearning, also a mournfulness, but definitely a sense of hope, as if you know, we can go there to this country they call life and your father was young when he said that do you feel he maintained hope in his life absolutely absolutely he no longer believes <laughs> he was the most hopeful person that i knew even when he was even he when he was paralyzed by a stroke and and you know he had been given three months to live he just i mean but first of all he lived for five years so the three months was really a very bleak prospect so he paid no attention to that but he he kept, I mean, he, he would do exercises every morning at 5 a.m. I would be woken up by him, you know, with his nurse. 
walking up and down the aisles and he would be practicing how to speak because he, you know, he lost part of his ability to speak. So he was literally, I would hear, ah, be, you know, like we should say, day. I mean, really horrible noises to wake up to at five in the morning. But actually they were sort of wonderful because it was him maintaining hope. It was him saying, I'm going to get better. Um, and he did, you know, not a huge lot better, but certainly better. Um, so he was. And I think actually it, it's it's quite a beautiful quote, because if you think it, 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 that my father quotes Rilke in the middle of the Nazi invasion, invasion I think it's sort of 1941 or so when he quotes, maybe it's 1942, I forget the exact date, but it was definitely in the middle of the invasion. It's the middle of the war. And if you think actually that there is another country and, and, and that hope is a place, then actually it's something that you can, you know, it's something, well, it's, it's something that you can touch. It's something that you can put your feet on. It's something that's there that you can travel to. Um, and it's nearby, right? And that's, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I think it's always there and it is nearby and it's just about whether we, we realize, you know, if I think if you get you lose perspective and 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 you immerse yourself too much in in, in the horrors around you, then you forget actually that there is a country nearby, and that it's called hope, and that you you can go there. There's another extract, Ariane, I wanted to read, which um, full of hope, but also anguish, and it's your father writing about borrowing a bicycle when he was in Berlin. As I pedalled the few blocks to and from my job, the simple happiness of feeling the rush of the wind on my face, if just for a second, made me forget who I was and reminded me of what it was like to be free. So the phrase made me forget who I was, I think about that, because for you, until you embarked on this book, there was nothing to forget. Do you think your father's silences during his lifetime was was protecting himself from excavating memory, but also protecting you from learning about his family, a family that was almost entirely wiped out. Uh, completely. I think it was, you know, I think, you know, I think, was he protecting himself? Maybe a little bit, but I think generally he was actually protecting me. Why would he share all those horrors? I mean, what good were they going to do me, right? I mean, he, if, if anything else... You know, he knew he could maintain hope regardless of that. But I'm not sure that he, you know, he didn't know that I could and he didn't want to do that to me. Right. So I think that's very much why he didn't talk about it. Um, I mean, I think there was a little bit where he was protecting himself and he was focusing on 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 the present. Um, and I, I love that line, actually. I love that line. It's my father's writing, so I'm, even though it's in my book, I'm allowed to love his line. Um, and I think actually, when that that sort of forgetting of yourself and 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 you know feeling the wind in your face. I mean, it's something actually that um, happens to me actually when I travel. Right, I go to places, and I think it's particularly important if you're traveling on your own because I think if you travel with people, right, you have you have these these patterns of behavior that you maintain but if you travel on your own you reinvent yourself and you get to a new place and you forget who you are a little bit maybe for a millisecond and you just feel that wind in your face and you have real freedom freedom to be whoever it is you're going to be for that particular moment um so and of course my father i mean this is berlin and it's the middle of the war um 
but this is just that sort of being able to bicycle, which of course he couldn't do in Prague because his bicycle had been taken away by the Nazis. So it, it's sort of ironic that he goes to the heart of the Nazi empire and somehow feels free because of that particular moment, right? He's just pedaling and it's the wind in his face and he's on his own and he's reinventing himself. So I think it's a little bit, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, I mean, I think it's a little bit what we do when we travel, of course, in, in, a, in a you know completely different way than what my father was doing. But they're these sensations, right, that they just make you forget. You know, you go to any seaside resort or you go to, you know, I don't know. I mean, I particularly love Eastbourne and Beachy Head and you just feel the wind and, it, you know, you just you forget who you are. And you're just at that moment, you're there and it's nature and it's you and it's the wind and it's that feeling of freedom. You know, my father's taste lasted a few seconds, if that, maybe a few minutes if he was lucky. If your father was alive now, how do you think he would feel about you having written the story? You know, he had a great sense of humour. He would have been very amused at the whole thing. I'd like to tell you that he would have sort of been emotional. Maybe he would have been a little emotional, I think. You know, I, I he was... He would have laughed. He would have thought it was really funny that it was a New York Times bestseller and all that stuff and all the copies that I've sold and all the languages. He would have really had a chuckle um, at that. Did he read it, Ariana? Would he have read it? He would have read it. He would have read it. He would have probably pointed out all the mistakes. <laughs> but I think actually... You know, he had this way because he was really awful with feelings and emotions and, and talking about it. But we communicated a lot with our hands. Like he, I, I know that sounds weird, but he would just, he would squeeze my hand when he was scared and he was, um, after he had a stroke. Um, and whenever we were going to doctor's appointments and things, it was always with our hands and we always held hands. And when we were in Prague wandering around and he was lost and I mean, I was pretty lost too he held my hand. So I'd like to think that he would have read my book and made fun of me and made fun of, you know, the, the people buying it. But I'm, I know that he would have squeezed my hand and given me a sort of, I'm proud of you, squeeze. Well done. You write this um, about him. You said his focus was always on life now, not that which had gone before. And yet, of course, your focus with this book is exactly the opposite. You, you know, we all have to work our parents somehow, right? I mean, you know, I sort of think of my children and how they pay no attention to anything I say to them. And of course, I'm no different, right? I mean, I think also when you grow up with someone that is so focused, um, so obsessively focused on the present and the future. You know, my father, he would subscribe to all these things, Scientific American and Omni, and sort of go, look how exciting, you know. I mean, he used to do internet phone calls in 1997 or 1998. I had these horrendous crackly things, and I was going, what are you talking about, you know? And he's going, I can't hear you. And he'd say, this is the way of the future. And I was going, what, this? I mean, are you serious? I can barely hear you. Why are you calling me through your computer? Um and it's extraordinary because that's what he focused on. He was really excited by the future. He, you know, he was really busy. So his present was incredible. And here I am, you know, talking to you through the medium that he said was the way of the future and, and you know, obsessed with 1943. Well, I'm going to force you to look to the future now because I'm going to ask you what you're working on and if you can tell us about the next book. Oh, goodness. You know, 
my book, I'm sort of stuck at the moment. So if you have any really good stories, I'm, 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 I've been talking to people with incredible stories about World War II. Um, I was doing a, a what I, you know, I, I was trying, I was hoping to tell a story of refugees that landed in England and ended up in Australia, of all places. Um, but I'm not quite sure that I can tell it in a way that's compelling enough to um, to sell books. So we'll have to see. I'm I'm writing a a, a chapter on memory. For a book on statelessness um, that's coming out in in a year, and, and the importance of family stories as well as archival archival material. Um, so, the short answer is I'm not quite sure what my next book is, but there's definitely going to be another one. And it's you know I'm hoping I'm hoping that it's going to be an incredibly life affirming um, story of, of of finding light amongst you know well amongst the darkness really and amongst the horrors that we all live well we not we that people live through as as refugees and 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 during wars so we'll see i'll keep you posted i mean actually as a matter of fact as we i think you should tell everybody that we were neighbors which is quite extraordinary right because we're I mean, you wouldn't necessarily know it looking at us, but we're, we have very similar backgrounds, right? We do. I mean, we are both South American and Czech. You have a little bit of more Asian than I do um, in there. Um, and I probably have a bit more Venezuelan. But, yeah, yeah, I have a lot of Guyanese, but yeah, yeah. I mean, we're neighbors in South America, our neighboring countries. And then and then we've got one parent from Bohemia, which... Um, yeah. Sure. Which is extraordinary, right? And and we, on the we same street. and we lived on the same street, exactly, exactly. And we sort of I forget why we said hello the first time, but we did, and we changed exchanged stories, and and that's why we're talking about it, right? And we're we're talking about stories. And if we hadn't changed, exchanged our stories, we would have never known that we had so much in common, because you just never know what stories you're going to learn and how it's going to enrich your life. Thank you, Ariana, for being my neighbor and my friend. And thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. It's a huge joy and a pleasure. And I just hope you, you know, come back and be my neighbor again. You're wandering around too much. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent. Goodbye.